Hello and welcome to Spiraling Upwards, where we are in pursuit of real holiness of life as a daily response to grace in the companionship of our Lord Jesus Christ and in the love of God the Father. I am Father Robert Healy, and I am delighted to welcome you to Episode 7. Today, we will be talking about virtue, what it is to be virtuous, what virtue itself is, and how to use prayer to grow in virtue. This is only going to be just kind of the start. We're going to be delving into this into a, a little more each of these progressive weeks as we move toward Lent. Um, but today, we just want to talk about what is virtue itself? And how do I start to to work toward it? How do I start to mold myself in accord with that idea? The idea of virtue is actually an enormously Catholic idea because it is part and parcel with the idea that we're capable of be, being holy, that we're capable of being sanctified in this life. And that that's not only something that is possible, but is actually an intended to be an ordinary part of our growth in prayer and our growth growth in closeness to our Lord. The idea that we are capable of being holy. This is something actually that the Protestant reformers uh, rejected right off the bat, the idea that we could be holy. They said our, our nature is so depraved, it's so destroyed by original sin that we aren't really capable of uh, being ourselves holy to have having real holiness of life we are we're simply stuck in our depraved state and we need our lord to do it for us we need our lord to um do all the good in and through me since i am myself am wicked and evil and everything that i do to um to loosely quote luther himself uh, if i if i use my free will it's a mortal sin period what a, well, that is not the Catholic idea of the life in union with God's grace. It isn't that God wants us to limp our way into heaven and he's going to just plug his nose and say, come on in, come in, come on in. I'm just not going to, I'm going to try not to smell you. You stink. No, our, our Lord wants to heal us and restore us. And if we're broken or if we're wounded or if we stink, he wants to mend that. He wants to make us beautiful and pleasing to him because that's what he made us for in the very beginning. And so our belief of virtue is that virtue is the way that God desires to restore us to kind of the state we were in, we're intended to be before the fall. And in some sense, better than that. Why? Well, because before the fall, our human nature, we not only had the gift of an intellect, the mind to know and the will to choose and to desire and, and to make decisions about things. And we had the passions, all the passions that come with our human nature. But uh, we also had what a, among the various different gifts God gave us, according to our faith, was the gift of what we call integrity. And integrity is that the passions were subject to the will and to the intellect, the will subject to the intellect, meaning what I know to be good, I desire. That the, all of the passions, all of these um, anger and fear and despair and audacity and hope and joy and sorrow and desire and hate and love and aversion, all these basic passions would be subject to 
what I know to be true. So that my intellect would rule supreme and I would desire that thing which I realize I should desire. And I would be angry about that thing I realize I should be angry about and to the degree I should be angry about it and no more. You know, I wouldn't flip my lid over something small. That I should love the thing that I should love, that I should hate the thing that I should hate. I should hate sin. I should hate evil and desire to remove it from the world. I should love goodness and I should love to promote it. I should take joy in the good that comes to another person. I should take sorrow in the ill. And I should I should suffer with another person, right? Everything should be properly organized and ordered such that what I realize uh, by God's grace is true and right with my mind, what I see to be good, um, I choose. And I don't have this, we shouldn't have this conflict where the mind's saying, that is bad for me, and the guts are saying, I want it. No, that, that in every way I should be at harmony. And this harmony is what we call virtue. Virtue comes from the Latin virtutis, which means strength. It's a particular strength that is active, that is actualized, that is living. The kind of strength that a person has when a person is capable at the drop of a hat, without the slightest training more, to run a marathon, or to play a Rachmaninoff concerto, or to knit a, a shawl, or whatever it takes, you know. There are particular skills that one achieves by doing them repeatedly and doing it well. And someone who's just starting out knitting maybe is trying to make sure they don't miss a cable or don't get this or that wrong. But someone who is very adept at it, who has a real strength and a real actualization of that skill, can do it with ease. And so the idea of virtue is really that we should be able to live a holy life that God desires by his grace to mold and to change and to heal and to shape us in the likeness of his divine son. And he's going to do this primarily and first of all in our prayer. We're going to have to do all sorts of things in um, to make sure that our, um, that our lives are conforming to what we see in prayer. But the first thing I want to talk about today about virtue, we'll get into some other things is the aspect of how that resolution we were talking about last week, when I'm finishing my prayer and I'm making a resolution, how I can use that resolution to grow in virtue, which is in some sense the very point of my having a resolution to begin with, such that I say, Lord, I want this prayer to impact my life. As I finish my time of prayer, I don't want to just, ah, oh, well, that was nice. Now I'm going to go back to being me. You know, I want, I want the prayer to change me. I want it to make me more like Christ and closer to him and living in union with him. And if I'm living in union with Christ, then it's going to shape me. If I have any good friend, you know, uh, scientists say, uh, you know, psychologists say that um, you will be most like the five people you hang out with the most. Have you heard this? I think this is very true. You'll be most like the five people you spend the most time with. And why is that? Because you listen to the way they talk. And you, you do the things they do. And you develop, you start to think the way they think. If you've got a clique of friends, say, and you don't, 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 don't do anything with anybody but these people, it creates this really, really tight-knit idea 
But sometimes it's pretty uh, constricted because the only people you're spending time with are uh, just as faulty as you are. And sometimes they have the very faults you have and they augment them. But if I'm spending time with someone who's truly good, truly noble, truly courageous, truly patient, and truly loving, it's going to make me more loving. You know, when you meet that person, you say, wow, I wish I had his ability to be able to recognize the good in other people. Every time around, I'm around this particular, particular person, all I can hear her say, or all I can hear him say is the good that he notices in other people. And I really admire that. Or I always notice that this person is constantly doing little things, not huge, big things, not big glamorous things, but just little things that show people love. You know, giving them a little pat on the back when they need it. Giving them a kind word. Bolstering them up. You know, treating them with dignity. Whatever it may be, you know? And so what we're, what we're actually saying is that when we spend time with our Lord and with his friends and with his close companions, when we spend time with St. Joseph and, and Mary beside the manger at Bethlehem, or when we spend time with the apostles as they're, as they're sitting on, on the Mount of Beatitudes listening to our Lord speak, we're going to be molded by them. And we should. We should desire that. So one example... Take, for instance, the third sorrowful mystery. This is the crowning of thorns. And the purpose of each of the decades of the, of the rosary, the mysteries of the rosary we meditate on. Again, we're going to talk about the rosary down the road. But the purpose of those mysteries is so we can take that time while we're praying that decade to really focus our attention on this particular moment in our Lord's life. And to focus not just on the fact that it actually happened, which we do want to focus on. This actually happened. You know, the angel actually spoke to Mary. Elizabeth actually greeted her. The baby actually leapt in Elizabeth's womb. Simeon actually took the baby in his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you may let your servant go in peace. So we want to focus on the fact that these things actually happened, but then we want to just sit in it and say, Ah, oh, what a wondrous something. What is it? What is it that's drawing our attention? And and to let it draw our attention and let it be something that we focus our our mind on and our prayer on. So to take the crowning of thorns, for example, we see the soldiers gathering around Christ. He's been scourged, he's been beaten within an inch of his life. The only reason they've stopped is because they don't want to kill him, because they want to crucify him. And in their absolute hatred of him, and also in their absolute mockery of his kingship. Because why has he been handed over? Because so-called, he said he was the king of the Jews. And so, uh, right there in that moment, as our Lord is, uh, has been dragged off to the side of the courtyard and they're getting ready to do something else with him. They put a military cloak over his shoulder and they put a reed in his hand for a scepter and they take thorns and they wrap him around in a crown and they press it on his head and crush it into his skull. Oh, how painful this must be. But it's not just that it's painful. If all we focus on while we're thinking about the crowning of thorns is the pain of it, we're going to shudder and we're going to turn our minds to something else because we think, oh man, I must be so sadistic that I'm thinking about all this evil. That's not the point. The point is we look at his face and we discover his face is very serene. 
Oh, would my face be serene like that? Here are all these people standing around, mocking, Hail, King of the Jews! Hail! Hail! Oh, oh, hail! And they're mocking his kingship, and he is a king. And they're uh, putting a, a rich robe over his shoulder like he's some important general. And they're mocking him. Now, this hatred, which is spilling out into, uh, into the whole praetorium, because all the whole cohort has been gathered around him and is all, they're all having fun at his expense. And it's the most painful, the most excruciating sort of fun at his expense. Seems not to get in. And I look at our Lord and I say, my God, my Lord, why is your face so calm and serene? Why don't you seem to be broken by all this? How is it that you are able to keep your composure and remain so peaceful? Not only, oh, I can tell, in your, on your face, but I know in your heart. I think back at the agony in the garden. I think about how our Lord has already handed everything over he's about to do. And so he endures the suffering silently, as he, as he himself said, like a lamb led to the slaughter. As he preached to his us long, long before through the mouth of the prophet Isaiah, he said, he opens not his mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter or the sheep before the shearers. So he was silent and uttered not a cry, right? This is our Lord here. And what, I'm, uh, what I should allow myself to be filled with is a wonder and a delight and a desire to emulate that patience. I have lots of little things I can put up with. I have lots of things that I can endure that are nowhere as painful, as derisive, as hateful, as excruciating as what they were doing to our Lord. And I don't put up with them with anything near the amount of patience and the amount of gentleness that he displays. And I want to change that. And so as I come to the end of my time of prayer, I say, okay, Lord, how about this? Please fill my heart with your patience. That patience, which I recognize is a courage beyond just getting up and, and staring at them all and using your divine power to strike them all dead like that. You could have. You're God. At any moment, he could have said, enough is enough. I'm sick and tired of this. I'm done. And that would be that. And all his enemies would crumble to dust and all of it. You know, he could have done that. But he doesn't. Why not? It's something to think about. But at least, dear Lord, I can finish my prayer by saying, at least, dear Lord, I resolve to be more patient. And I beg you by your grace to help me to be more patient, to teach me the same heroic patience where I can be calm and composed, even when people are making fun of me, even when people don't understand me, even when people seem to simply want to get my goat. And I know that I'm not going to have the strength at the moment, so please teach me that patience. But you've probably heard it said, I know I've heard it said before, that uh, you shouldn't ask for patience, or God's going to give you something to be impatient that's going to test your patience. But that's, I don't think that that's true. 
I think that that is to miss the point of what patience itself is. Patience is a virtue. It's a strength. It's a courage. It's a particular power. Impatience, as the word suggests, is a lack of patience. And so to be truly patient is actually to have the strength to be able to endure, to be able to bear a situation I don't like without getting flustered, without getting mad about it. To be able to retain my composure in the midst of a ridiculous onslaught of hatred. Well, if our Lord can do it, so can I. Not of my own strength, because I know what happens with my own strength. I know that I flip out, I get mad, I start chewing people up. And then not only do they feel bad, but I start feeling bad because I realize I treated them in a way I wouldn't want to be treated. I realize I've treated them in a way that I would never want the Lord to see. Especially if he were sitting there crowned with thorns and watching. I say, oh, I don't want to, I don't want to ever give in to my impatience ever again. And the more I can make this resolution, you see, this is just an example. We're going to talk more about virtue and what the different virtues are and how they, what they look like. But right now we're just using this example because we're talking about how that resolution that we talked about last week can be molding our hearts. So when I leave my prayer, I can say, dear Lord, I want to be like you in this way. Please give me this attribute of yours. Teach me your courage. Teach me your joy. Teach me your strength. Teach me your patience. And I resolve whenever something is not going my way, to offer it for love of you. And in this way, I allow my prayer to inform my day. Because you know what? What's going to happen? I'm going to forget about that. And then in the middle of some situation that I am really getting steamed about, I'm going to suddenly see the face of our Lord with the crown of thorns. And he's going to say, is it that bad? And I'll say, no, Lord, it's not that bad. I think I can put up with this too. Thank you.